You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 88 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton for the first time in what seems like several weeks. But uh, Baylor Athletic Director Mac Rhodes will join myself and Kevin here in just a few minutes for a 25-minute sit-down interview Focusing on the state of Baylor Athletics, a few comments on the U of University of Houston and uh, Tillman Fertitta as well. But first, uh, it's good to have us all back here in the studio for the first time in several episodes. And uh, I, I must say, after traveling for two weeks, it's good to be back in front of the microphone. Welcome back, man. We're glad to have you. We saw some very cool footage from your uh, drone obsession that you, I guess, brought with you to a foreign country and did. didn't get arrested did. for. No, it's, it's totally acceptable in there. <laughs> yeah. And, you've, and you found like-minded people, right? I did. In Singapore, I actually I thought I was going to be the only person shooting a drone uh, I guess a drone shot over uh, Marina Bay, which yeah. is this gorgeous uh, cityscape right alongside the bay in Singapore. And if, it, if, if it's great weather, it just it makes for a phenomenal picture. But I thought I'd be the only person out there. No. Mm-hmm. I saw like two other um, Brits walking, and I was like, hey, guys. And where was how's this? How's it going? Singapore. Singapore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good to be back. Jeremy, it's nice to have you back too as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, was yours the only drone in the air? Because I feel like that's, yeah, it is socially acceptable. And I feel like there would be hundreds, if not thousands of drones that's in true. the air. You oh, sorry. Oh, so sassy, Jeremy. Oh, absolutely. No, I, 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 I'm just, I'm curious because I, I looked at some of your photos and you look like you had the worst time of your life. You looked absolutely miserable. It, it was, it was pretty miserable, to be fact. Uh, you know, Japan. Is Singapore a country? What's the deal with it's that? It's a city state. It's like a port city. A city state? What is it, Athens? <laughs> not quite. Uh, like Athens mid- is not. Fifth century BC Athens? No, it's it's a it's a port essentially. Mm. Um, it's a port city. Uh, it used to be a British colony. Uh, it's a huge economic center for Southeast Asia. I mean, uh, gorgeous buildings, uh, a lot of industry, and actually they they kind of have like four different quarters because it's it's a very diverse country. So you've got a huge Malaysian population, a huge mm. Chinese population, a huge Indian population, and then you also have a lot of expats there. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very very gorgeous country. Uh, amazing food. Uh, I actually went to a one Michelin star hawker stand. Ended up getting some like chicken and pork, all for like six bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the cheapest hawker stand in the world. In fact, I actually think it is. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, I, I highly recommend it. It's a long flight. It yeah. literally took me twenty four hours from the time that I left Singapore. And you weren't you weren't arrested or caned or, or punished or disciplined. No, I uh, I threw my gum away at the airport. You know, it's funny Kevin says that because they do have some very strict laws in the books, yeah. like governing mostly everything. So, but it's good to hear that chicken, pork, and drone flying are all three things you can drone enjoy. Drone flying is acceptable only <laughs> up to two hundred and fifty meters. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. So there are some regulations around that, but uh, it's good to be back. And it's uh, you know been quite the busy week in the sports world. Uh, the Rockets clinching the number three seed in the Western Woo. Conference playoff race are going to take on. Uh, Oklahoma City Thunder. It's the matchup the everybody I, I, wanted. I think so. And we'll talk more about that next week with uh, Jeff Van Gundy, former Rockets head coach and uh, current analyst on ESPN. He'll join us on the show. So we'll talk a lot about the NBA playoff race. But uh, the Astros also went 3-3 three and three in the first six games, uh, taking three out of four against the Mariners and dropping the series against the Kansas City Royals. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later on in the show. And um, kind of the big storyline that hit the sports world this week Tony Romo announced that he's retiring and will join Jim Nance in the broadcast booth this fall as the top football analyst for CBS Sports. And all told, uh, do you feel confident about the Texans in 2017 under Tom Savage? And we'll get to Tony Romo in just a moment. Do I feel confident? No, I have no reason to feel confident. Now, I do feel cautiously um, 
I don't even want to say optimistic. I think this could go okay. If you if you bolster that offensive line, you, you put the right pieces around Savage, he takes some steps forward, he's shown some promise, not an ability to stay healthy, but there is reason to think this could work out. I wouldn't say that I'm uh, particularly hopeful or counting on it working out. Though. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've listened to, to Houston Sports Radio this week, and all of the hosts I've heard are trying to feign confidence in the Texans QB situation heading into next season. Some are saying that we're going to draft name a names. quarterback. Name names. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going <laughs> to trash anybody on the podcast. But no, but <laughs> some, some, some people have been have been feigning confidence. And I'm just like in, in hearing hold Bill O'Brien talk about it. You're not going to trash them by repeating their opinions? I, no. I, think, I, I think it's totally fair. I mean, we'll say it. I think every single sports analyst here in the city has trashed Rick Smith. I think the Texans, we certainly have. Yeah, I mean, I think the Texans have been put into a position where the last 15 years they've been looking for a quarterback. I mean, you look at... Matt Schaub is being the best quarterback in your franchise. I mean, he had a great, what, two, three seasons and just absolutely fell off the map. But I don't He's know. He's the GOAT. Just 2012. Yeah. I, I yeah. Think about this, man. We I've gone from a point where I like don't respect him, uh, Rick Smith, to a point where I respect him so much because he has this Rasputin-like grasp over uh, over the owner. It's, 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 it's appalling that he still has a job, but I don't really like hate him or think he should be gone anymore or like even want him fired. I find myself mystified by what, uh, what sort of spiritual energies he must have at his disposal to keep his job. Yeah, I, I never thought that Tony Romo was the long-term answer for the Texans. So I think I think this impacts you here. I never thought season. Tony Romo was the long-term answer for the Cowboys. Well, obviously not. I mean, Jerry Jones made that decision with Dak Prescott last year. But I, I, think I meant problem, even like 10 years ago. I think the problem with Tony Romo, injury issues, obviously. He's 37. He's aging. At best, he's a one-year, two-year fix for you at quarterback. But what's your long-term answer? Is Tom Savage that guy? I'm not sure. He mm. also has injury issues. Every single year he's been with the Texans, He's been hamstrung by injuries. Uh, you look at his stats last year, though. He did complete 63% of his passes, passer rating around 81%. Not bad. I mean, not great, but certainly better than what we saw from Brock Osweiler. The question is, you're still in the same position now, I, I think, long-term, whether or not you would have gotten Romo or not. You still have to draft a quarterback. Texans draft right now at 25 in the first round of the NFL draft coming up here in just a few weeks. Who do they take? I, I really like you know the quarterback out of uh, Texas Tech, Pat Mahomes, mm-hmm. I think he's going to be gone probably around you know that ten to fifteen range. Yeah. So that leaves you with maybe a, a Mitch Trubisky, maybe a Deshaun Kaiser, maybe Deshaun Watson. I mean, are, are those guys the answers for the Texans? Kaiser and Watson are both guys that I like a lot. But we'll we'll get into this with Sean Pendergast. He'll be with us here next week. We'll do a little draft preview. But uh, but I think that you have to. I think the offensive line is as much of a concern because you look at Absolutely. Tom Savage. He is uh, you know injury prone. Sure, I don't know. We don't know he's going to be injured next season. He's kind of a known commodity. You know he can compete and perform at the highest level. So do you think that you know maybe a Kaiser or, or a Mahomes may not be there? But one of those guys is going to come in and be better than Savage immediately. No. I don't think no. so. So, uh, you know, I think the offensive line more of a concern. I would not see. I mean, I would not be disappointed to see them not draft a quarterback in the really? first round. And everything I'm seeing is saying they're probably not going to go quarterback in the first round. Everything I'm seeing says they will go quarterback. Well, then send and me your stuff because I'm reading a whole different side of the internet. I, I, think, you. You, I think you are. I mean, uh, check out like the latest mock draft from the Chronicle. I think uh, John McClain uh, has picked a quarterback every single time. And now it's switched on who that quarterback would be. I think initial mock drafts assumed that Pat Mahomes would be there late in the first mm-hmm. round. That's not going to be the case. I'm also interested to see if the Texans, I don't know, try to do something like make a trade for Jimmy Garoppolo, bring in a, a veteran free agent like Jay Cutler, uh, or oh, even trade no. up in the first round. No, not Jay Cutler. Please, no. Why not? Because he's Jay Cutler. No, I, I you know what? Than I would have on Ross. I right would, now. well, that, that, but that's not saying much. <laughs> um, 
I would love for the Texans not to do the cliched, predictable thing that they do every year and take some sort of like high grade defensive player. It, it, it bugs the absolute crap out of me. I can't stand it. To have so, the best defense in the league? No, no. Just to, to, but to sacrifice everything on well, offense for the sake the of deal. defense. I don't know yeah. that they're sacrificing everything on offense. I mean, they have great skill position players. Granted, they're a little bit young. They they are weak in the offensive line. They've got a nice tight end. I think your problem is. You need a quarterback. You don't need like a, a Dak Prescott, like a game changer. You need someone that can manage the game. Think Trent Dilfer a few years back uh, when, uh, what was it, Baltimore Ravens won their first Super Bowl. They didn't have a great offense. They had a phenomenal defense with a quarterback who didn't screw things up. Is he the, is he the least uh, competent or least spectacular quarterback to win in the modern era? Uh, I think you could probably go with uh, Tampa Bay Bucks and Johnson. Okay, that's a good call. That, one of those two. But mm-hmm. both of those teams... We're built on strong defense. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, I think the Texans, they will have a top five defense in the league this year if everyone stays healthy. Of course, you get J.J. Watt back. You get Kevin Johnson back. But you need to stay healthy, and you need to have Savage stay healthy and not turn the ball over, which yeah. he showed us last year that he's not going to turn the ball over as much, at least, as Brock Osweiler. So that, that's got to be encouraging. And you've got to improve the running game, too. You know, I think that that's, that's going to take a lot of pressure off of whoever's uh, under center there or, or at least playing quarterback for us. So there's there's a lot of different ways. There's no People always say you got to have a quarterback, you got to have a quarterback. Yeah, he makes more impact than any other single individual player, but you can have a defense that is that much better than the quarterback is, and you can, you can win that way, too. I mean, you just need to score more points than the other squad. It is that simple. Absolutely. And here, here's an interesting fact. Um, Todd McShay from ESPN... Uh, I had a quote earlier this week talking Great about hair. Houston taking a, uh, a quarterback, and that, no, that's not Todd McShay. What? Todd McShay has like normal hair. No, he's got very quaffed, like short hair. I love Todd McShay. All right, all right. He's. I've never heard anyone talk about his hair, but hey, it's nondescript, <laughs> but it's also never out of place. Like, there's never a single strand that is. I mean, he could be in his like apartment doing something okay. like a webcam thing, and it looks flawless. All right. Well, uh, shout out to Todd. He ended Michel. up having a tweet earlier this week that said that uh, knowing what Bill O'Brien looks for in a quarterback and the mental component involved. None of the NFL draft quarterbacks can help. So there's that. What is it, what is he looking for? He seems to know very specifically what is Bill O'Brien said that he needs to have that isn't there. Jimmy Garoppolo. Well, but what what are those qualities? What is he looking for exactly? Because you can point to all these quarterbacks and they have some good points and some flaws. What is that exact collection he I, needs I, to have? I think he's looking for a quarterback with a brain. I mean, because I like at, that. I mean, look at it. Brady smart. Always up in the film room. So are we saying uh, that all these quarterbacks smart. are brainless or are not uh, high IQ, high football IQ guys? I'm 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 gonna go with like not high football IQ. Hmm. Um, I mean, look at it. The most successful quarterback in the Bill O'Brien era in a Texans jersey, <laughs> Fitzpatrick. Yeah, he's a what Harvard educated quarterback. Is he? Is that right? Yeah, I thought he was know. Yale. Maybe no. He's Ivy League. There's really no, no. difference between Harvard and Yale, honestly. Yeah, I mean Ivy League. He's smart. at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I guess going back to the other big news, um, Tony Romo retiring will replace Phil Simms in the booth at CBS. There's been a lot of people this week um, in the sports media world that aren't huge fans of this decision, saying that he's not qualified, uh, saying that it's going to be a uh, rough learning curve for him. I'm kind of in the boat that I like this move because that means I don't have to watch Phil Sims on CBS anymore. Am, am I kind of out of line believing that? People are out of or people out of line. People are not seeing uh, the forest for the trees in this case. Yeah, you're getting rid of Phil Sims. He's terrible. That's 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 a win right there. He's absolutely not qualified. 
when has it ever been about that? Exactly. You know, like, uh, who, what are people complaining about? People have always gotten jobs based on who they know, based on their uh, unrelated uh, fame and job history and so forth. So it's not surprising to me at all. I'm actually kind of in the field now. And I got to be honest, it doesn't tear me up too much. It's exactly the sort of thing I expect to happen. I don't think that, uh, I mean, maybe he is taking, quote unquote, taking a job away from a more qualified person. But that's always been the way that it's been. And I just don't find it surprising enough to even really get upset about. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe the three of us have more broadcast experience than Tony Romo. Well, I know Kevin and I do because yeah. we've actually been in the broadcast booth for uh, football games. That's correct. Now, it's been high school football games, and I've done college baseball before. What have you done? Uh, this doesn't count as broadcast. This is not broadcast. Oh, it's not. Oh, well, that was that, that's my mistake. Okay. I, I, I think so, this so is... Kevin this is and I have more experience than you and Tony Romo. <laughs> but point taken. Uh, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I think... Uh, He's <laughs> he'll probably be fine. He's articulate and charming, yeah. and I don't think the expectations yeah. are too high. I don't think he's going to be a huge disappointment or anything. Yeah, I think it was kind of funny. I was listening to um, a Mad Radio this week uh, on the drive into work, uh, and if you don't know Mad Radio, uh, we've had the the guys on the show probably a year ago at this time, uh, but I can't remember who it was. They they were talking about uh, Tony Romo being quote unquote likable, and I'm not sure that that's the case. And I believe, I, was, like I, I believe it was Seth Payne that said, you know, he's got a punchable face, like. I said that. We got it on tape. <laughs> we know those guys listen to the show, though. That's fine, honestly. Uh, Seth, if you are if you are cherry picking some of my uh, my best comments to use on the air, I take that as flattery, and you just go for it, buddy. I'm wondering, is Tony Romo injury prone uh, in the press box there? Like, is he going to miss any broadcast <laughs> because he has a punchable All face? I, I'm wondering, like, you know, is, is Tony Romo out this week and? Uh, there's maybe one of you guys filling in. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, CBS would call up, hey, Kevin, hey, Austin, Tony's out this week. Do you guys want to step in with Jim Nance? If that was the case, I would totally. Stay. I know Jim. I certainly send Jim. them a lot of emails about it, so maybe something will happen. Yeah, fair enough. But <laughs> um, yeah, so just kind of looking really quickly on Tony Romo's career, uh, undrafted free agent, mm -hmm. had. A remarkable 14-year career. I mean, he made, what, 140, 150 million. That's the remarkable part. for 14 years. I, I think that what's impressive to me is the quarterbacks taken ahead of him. We hear all this stuff about, you know, the six quarterbacks taken in front of Tom Brady, but mm -hmm. Tom Brady was drafted. Romo wasn't. He was a guy that had to work his way on, even, you know, from signing a $25,000 signing bonus. But look at the quarterbacks that were taken in front of him. Carson Palmer, still active. Better quarterback. Uh, he was taken by the Bengals. Yeah, I think he was the right decision. He was taken number one overall that year. Uh, at number seven, uh, Jaguars selected Byron Leftwich. Do you, do you guys remember him? Of course I do, yeah. but mostly because of his name is very distinctive, and so it kind of yeah, stuck in my memory. He was not memorable. Exactly. Uh, Kyle Bowler. Nope. Rex Grossman. Of course. Uh, here's kind of funny. Uh, Dave Ragone. Texans drafted him in the mm -hmm. second round. Do you remember that? Yeah. Dave Ragone. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the Bucks picked uh, Chris Sims yep. in the uh, second round of the draft that year. So I think that's kind of funny that you know sims was drafted ahead of him but romo's taking his dad's job i, <laughs> I think that's kind of funny but uh karma Tony romo uh out as quarterback uh retiring i guess officially yeah and, and uh, uh stacking up uh two all-time playoff wins if i'm not mistaken yeah i mean that's those are brock osweiler type numbers that's like 75 so. million dollars a playoff win <laughs> so great investment there for uh jerry jones but one last thing before we move on to our interview with mac Rhodes, uh the maps are going to honor tony romo on monday by inking him to a one-day deal, and Tony Romo is going to be sitting on the end of the Mavericks bench in uniform. 
Can I, can I, okay, so Brian T. Smith, uh, can I read from his, his uh, commentary? Absolutely. Okay, so Brian T. Smith wrote an article about this, and I got to say, when I heard that, that Tony Romo was going to be sitting on the Mavs bench, he's signing a one-day contract or 10-day, whatever it is, uh, I was I kind of, you know, whatever. I rolled my eyes. It's kind of silly or whatever. Brian T. Smith came out with this. If you haven't seen it, go to cron.com. It is well worth reading. But it starts out, only Mark Cuban could be this arrogant and clueless. Only an NBA loser out of Dallas could be this dumb. Tony Romo was also involved, which tells you everything you need to know about the pitiful little circus that 32 and 47 Mavericks will reportedly try to play. Where is this anger coming from, Brian? He just hates Dallas. Are things okay at home, buddy? <laughs> he like, just hates Dallas. I don't, I'm not going to be too critical of a guy that works for my company and is much more important and powerful than I am, but I think this feels like an overreaction. Well, Someone should check on him. No, 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 no. no that, that is a very normal uh, anger response to what is an obscenely ridiculous situation. So you're also worked up about this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, 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 no. That's that's completely rational. I would not judge this man in the least. All right. So how about another ridiculous thing that is happening with the Dallas sports team? Uh, The Frisco Rough Riders have extended an offer to Phil Simms to serve as a lead analyst on uh, on the team's game like broadcast this year. I mean, how ridiculous are Dallas franchises? Like, how desperate are Dallas franchises? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a terrible move. They like spectacle. They like publicity there. There may be a little more flash, a little less substance than Houston. It might be a fair characterization, but I don't hate any of those moves. They're just, they're fine. <laughs> All right, well, we'll have more headlines and topics to discuss later in the show, including thoughts on what is happening in Syria. Uh, but we want to go ahead and get our, uh, to our interview with Baylor AD Mac Rhodes here in just a few moments. And uh, before we do that, we want to remind our listeners that you can follow us on our social media accounts by searching at Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, you can follow our show on our website, weeklybrewcast.com, and you can sign up for push notifications there as well. But without further ado, it's time for 25 minutes with Baylor AD Mac Rhodes. So sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Mac Rhodes, athletic director at Baylor University and former AD at Mizzou and the University of Houston. And first off, Mac, thanks for taking the time to join us this week. Well, my pleasure, and I certainly look forward to the next uh, few minutes together and uh, appreciate you having me on. Well, it's great to have you on, and uh, you know it's been quite the spring for uh, Baylor athletics so far. I mean, both Scott Drew and Kim Mulkey uh, had their basketball teams clicking on all cylinders in March, making a deep run uh, in the postseason. Of course, baseball and softball have made strong starts, and men's golf just uh, achieved their first number one ranking in school history. But after a difficult past year, with you know everything that went on with uh, Coach Bryles, uh, how refreshing is it to see these student athletes performing at such a high level, both on and off the field you know it's it's uh, unbelievably refreshing and um you know i'm going to brag brag on our student athletes here for just a little bit you know you mentioned you know the the great runs from both men's and women's basketball and uh, so proud of both of those teams and and the way that they performed and um you know both both making the postseason and uh and and making runs you know uh into the postseason and and then you know you mentioned baseball and softball and right now baseball's got an rpi of 10 in the country and softball the latest rankings you know 13th in the country you talked about men's golf and the number one ranking but our women's golf team is also ranked number 20th and uh our men's tennis program number four our women's tennis program number 15 and you know we've got uh one of the top equestrian teams and and uh, and uh, acrobatics and tumbling and, and uh, certainly outdoor track and field and so just proud of all of our sports programs but but most proud of our student athletes I said this when I arrived you know we've got great 
student athletes here. And, uh, you know, we have 500 plus and, uh, it's been an honor and a, and a joy to work with them on a, on a daily basis and, and still in the process of getting to know them. Uh, but, uh, they really are phenomenal in, in terms of, uh, the way they represent the university and, um, not just on the fields, but, but certainly off the fields equally important and in, in their achievements in the, in the classroom, et cetera, have, have been phenomenal. And again, it's, you know, it's, uh, just candidly, um, you know, we, we had a handful of, of, uh, some student athletes that, uh, that, that did some, some things that absolutely were not right. Um, and, uh, you know, things that, that, uh, were just atrocious and, um, but, uh, you know, what, what I hope most is, is that we don't allow those, those handfuls to find, um, you know, the 500 because, uh, again, uh, we, we have uh, unbelievable student athletes. And, and again, I'm, I'm really, really proud of them. I think it's interesting, Coach Rhodes. You know, you, you, you did between the time I saw you around campus at U of H and your current position at Baylor, you did spend a year at Mizzou. And that was, there were some problems there, uh, programmatically, I think from the top down. Uh, I wonder, it was a pretty short tenure there, but, but did you learn things that kind of uh, influenced uh, your decisions or the way you approached taking on the Baylor job? Well, you know, I think anytime you're, you're and again, at, at, at a portion of the time there at Mizzou, I mean, there, there was, uh, you know, you, you were kind of in crisis management mode. And, and, you know, one of the things that you learn is, is um, even though you're, you're in crisis management mode and, you, and you've got to be quick to, react um, there's a difference between quick to react versus overreacting and uh, I think the thing that you, you always have to be careful about is is an overreaction to anything because now all of a sudden you know that that then creates additional problems and and, and, and other issues that, that maybe you didn't foresee so I think the thing that that maybe I've learned most is again not not that you're not going to make a decision or you're not going to react you, you certainly are okay but but finding that balance and and, and really um what's what's the, the the best decision in terms of keeping the train on the tracks and, and again I, I think that that so many times you can overreact and, and then it leads to other issues you know one of your first big hires obviously was matt rule uh you had uh you know hired him in december and he to me, from an external perspective, seems about as high character of a head football coach that you will find. Uh, what he did at Temple was also remarkable, taking, uh, you know, kind of a dormant team and taking up to an elite level winning, you know, back-to-back 10 games in a season. Uh, what was it about him from a strategy standpoint that made him the guy for Baylor who, you know, scheme-wise is way different from what we saw with Coach Bryles? You know, I, you know I'll, I'll talk about the scheme uh, piece of it um, here in just a sec, but I think just the leadership piece of it um, for, for us, um, just strategically, uh, he's just a, he's a CEO, and uh, I think he knows how to how to create vision, how to how to build a, a championship culture, a championship process. We talk about that a lot, and uh, and hold people accountable to it. And uh, you know, the thing that that really struck me is is everybody. Uh, is all in, and, and everybody is uh, on the same page, and uh, not just some of the time, but uh, but but all of the time. And uh, you know, I think he's got great intellect, and uh, you know, he's a guy that just is is going to figure it out. And so, you know, this leads me into scheme a little bit. But uh, you know, you think about the recruiting piece, and, and here was a 
uh, you know, a head football coach in the middle of, of, of Philadelphia, you know, northeast, and, you know, how is this guy going to come to Texas where, you know, Texas is unique and you have to have positive relationships with the Texas high school football coaches, but how is he going to come here and, and recruit? And uh, just knew that he was smart enough and, and had the energy, but, but more than anything, just genuine um, and, and would be able to develop those relationships and, and uh, you know, what he did in the class that he put together uh, in such a short time, uh, you know, when we only had one commit. So able to figure it out. And, and you know, when you think about scheme, um, he's, he's going to run a scheme that, uh, you know, that uh, is going to allow us to, 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 uh, to win football games. And um, I don't think necessarily it's going to be the same thing that, that he did at Temple. I think it's, it's going to be built around, um, you know, the, the, the talent and the type of talent we're able to, to recruit here. Um, but also there, there certainly will be a change of philosophy where, you know, I, th- I think there will be a little bit more uh, maybe, maybe balance. And I think there'll be some time for, for where it's, you know, it's, it's no huddle fast. Uh, but then I think there'll be times when, you know, we've got a lead and, and we're trying to use clock to our advantage. And so we'll do that. And so, uh, again, I, I think he's, he's, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll develop that scheme that, that will best allow us to win games really on, on both sides of the ball. And, uh, you know, as, and as you all know, what a, what a great job he did at Temple and he figured out what the mm-hmm. best, how, how was the best way to win games there and was able to win 10 games two years in a row, which, which was unheard of. Talking about, we're talking about identity, kind of character of the team, what have you. I think that this is my own personal observation, but but kind of the talk was that the prior teams uh, under Bryles were more kind of like speed finesse type teams. And I think that, you know, here we have a philosophy of maybe smash mouth or physical football. Uh, is that fair to say? Is that characterization fair? Is that kind of a shift to a more like fundamentally sound line oriented type of, you know, aggressive style football? And do you notice that uh, that maybe the reputation of the program and who it's looking for is changing amongst, you know, high school athletes? You know, I think, you know, not, not to, you know, not compare in terms of previous staff and, and how they, they ran things. I, I just know, you know, how, you know, in, in terms of moving forward, you know, you know, you'll, you'll look and, and look at practices and practices are very physical. There's, there's contact. I think there's, you know, there's this mentality of, of, uh, you know, one wanting to build toughness, wanting to build character, um, you know, almost where, you know, practices are, are going to be much, much harder than, than what it is to, to compete in a, in a, in a football game. I think, you know, just philosophically, there's, there's equal importance, you know, played, you know, to, to, uh, you know, both sides of the ball, both defensively and offensively. Um, you know, I, I think when it's, when we talk about recruiting and, and the, in the types of, uh, of athletes that, that, uh, that, that we're going to want to recruit here. Yeah, there's still going to be a huge emphasis, uh, emphasis on speed and, and, and skill. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he'll, he'll uh, absolutely just, you know, it, it certainly will be different um, uh, in, in, in terms of just maybe the way practice is and, and, and the way we, we play and, and compete on the field. I remember watching his press conference back in December when he, you know, when he was announced as the head football coach, and uh, I don't know, he just had that like preacher mentality. Almost made you want to run through a brick wall and you know play for him. With spring, you know, practice going on right now in Waco, how have you noticed, you know, kind of the morale for the team change since he's been on campus? 
I, I think it's been I, I think it's been terrific. I, I think you know uh, we're in this process of our, of our student athletes buying in. Um, you know it it is different uh, than than what they've they've been used to, and and um, you know anytime whether it's this situation or it's any situation across the country where there is a change in leadership. Um, there, there always is going to be change, and, and I think our, our young men here, um, as as they've gotten to know him, and, and here's what I'll tell you about uh, Coach Rule and the staff: they they spend a lot of time, I mean, a lot of time, significant amount of time, more time than, than maybe any coach I've been around in terms of pouring into our young men, meaning spending time with them, not just football related items but but things in terms of life and in the different conversations and just being around them and uh and so you know you're starting to you're starting to see our young men become become very very comfortable and, and buy in and, and and really believe in in coach well not just as a football coach but as a as a person and i think i can say that across the board with, with the staff as well I think it's interesting when you allude to sort of the, the relationship between Rule and the players and, and that love, that bond. You know, you're talking about buy-in, all that stuff. It reminds me of uh, another guy you hired, Tom Herman, obviously, who uh, you know follows very closely uh, here in Houston at the University of Houston while he was here. And is that something that you just that you feel like you look for that you have to have in a coach uh, at any position? Just a guy that it really is invested in the players and their lives. Yeah, I mean, I do. There's a book out there. Um written by, by Todd Gongwer called Lead for God's Sakes. And it's, it's one of the best books ever written. I, I think if, if you're certainly coaching and, and, and you're, in the athletic, uh, you're in the athletic profession, but uh, it really talks about capturing the heart of, of, of your, your you know, uh, student athlete, or of your athlete, the person that you're, you're coaching. And, um, and I think that's, you know that's something that that Coach Rule does exceptionally well. Um, obviously, it's something that I thought Tom Herman would would do very well. Um, but uh, you know, if it can be more about football and in, in that there's this and in, in that it's genuine, um, and, and I think that's the key word that it's genuine. But it, it, if you're able to, to to really capture the heart, um, you know, and and uh, and and, and you know, young men or student athletes, young men and women understand that you really care about them at, at a much deeper level than just than just the sport itself. Um, they're going to do amazing things, and, and they're going to want to uh, perform at the highest level, and they're going to want to be coached hard. and uh, And I think Matt Matt is exceptional at, uh, at at being able to do that, and I think he's assembled a staff that uh, does does a great job at it as well. Yeah, I was kind of impressed when Coach Rule spoke of the, you know, emphasizing the student and the athlete. I think that was something that stood out to me in his opening uh, press conference. But uh, kind of switching gears, I guess, to, to a brief extent, uh, Jeff Bannister, uh, you know, Rangers manager, uh, his daughter, Alex, played volleyball for Baylor. And uh, there was an article, I believe it was Baylor Proud, like uh, an interview, maybe with the ESPN Central Texas. He spoke very highly of Baylor, you know, you know, admitted that there were some issues that happened in the past year, but said that as you know, he would feel comfortable sending his daughter, you know, back to Baylor would encourage her to go again. I, I guess with everything that has happened, you know, with, with the new staff in place, if, if you're giving a message to student athletes or parents that might be concerned, you know, that, that maybe Baylor does have a, a bad rep because of what has transpired the last year or so, what would you tell them to kind of ease those fears? You know, I think one, look, we're, we're, 
we're not trying to hide uh, anything that, that happened in the past. Uh, it happened, unfortunately, and I and I and I say that with a very very heavy heart. Um, you know, uh, daily we we think about you know the, the victims and and we'll continue to and and just because we're moving forward does not mean that that you know we'll soon forget uh, about any of the victims and and uh, because we we never will and uh, and we never want to make those mistakes again. And uh, I think we've absolutely learned from it. Um, I think we're moving in a, in a great direction in terms of the culture. Uh, you know, we talked about the 500 student athletes. You know, if you look at the, the young men on our football team, uh, I'm not going to tell you that they're perfect, but they, they are solid people, really good good young men. And, and, and Baylor's a special place. It, it is. Um, you know, if you want a place where, where you know, we're going to care about uh, your, your daughter or your son um, much deeper uh, than, than just just the athletic uh, piece, the athletic dimension to it. Um, this is a great place for, for, for them to go to school. You know, obviously the, the quality of education, uh, certainly the, the Christian foundation, all of those things. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not perfect, and uh, we, we obviously have, have made some very, very serious mistakes, but we're growing from it. We're learning from it. Uh, I have a daughter that, that goes to school here. Uh, she absolutely loves it, loves the people. And, uh, and and I think at the end of the day, any organization, you win with people, and I think that's what makes Baylor special. We actually asked some of our listeners uh, to provide some questions. One of the common themes seemed to be scheduling. And, uh, you know, for the past few years, it seems like uh, Baylor football has faced a light non-conference schedule. And that changes a bit starting this year with the home-and-home series against Duke beginning. And, of course, you've got Utah coming up and then the the neutral site game against Ole Miss. Uh, Moving forward, what does the scheduling philosophy look like for both you and Coach Rule? You know, I I think we're going to schedule – as, as the program grows and becomes more competitive and as we become more competitive, uh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to schedule a, a more competitive uh, non-conference. Now, you know, what's, what's different um, is that, you know, in the Big 12, we play non-conference games. And so you, you only have the flexibility to, to schedule three non-conference um, every year. And then the Big 12 just recently mandated that of those three, uh, one is always against the Power Five, so you know because of that stipulation too, that's that's going to force all of us in the, in the Big Twelve to to improve that that non-conference schedule, which we embrace and and, and we're excited about, and you know we we want our fans to be excited about uh, about our non-conference schedule. Um, I'm not going to you know we're not going to play all three non-conference Power Five. I mean, at, at the end of the day, when you play nine conference games and in a, a league of this stature, uh, you know, you you've got to be careful in terms of in terms of overscheduling. Um, but uh, you know, you look at somebody like Duke, who's gone to it's not the same Duke that we all think of. I mean, they've you know the last five seasons they've been to four bowl games and and won the the Pinstripe Bowl in 2015. So again, a quality opponent. But uh, we want to you know we ultimately here here here's here's the goal. The goal is. We believe we can win a national championship here. Uh, we can do that in football. I believe we can do it in any one of our sport programs here, and that's certainly one of the things that makes Baylor special in, in competition. Um, but I also think we can do it the right way um, you know, in this space that we call big-time college athletics. You know, Baylor should be 
the, the, the flagship institution and, and how we do that. And when I say that, you know, um, from, a, from a compliance standpoint, from a social responsibility standpoint, uh, character formation standpoint, uh, we should do that better than anybody that, uh, uh, in, in the country, and that's, and that's our goal. We talk about over and over and over again with our student-athletes preparing champions for life. And uh, I know I'm getting off the, the schedule piece, but, um, you know, we're going to build a schedule that, that, that is going to give us an opportunity to compete for a national championship. Well, Coach, it is exciting uh, to hear you. I mean, it's a, it's a premier program, certainly. You're, you're in a premier spot, and it is cool to see you there after uh, after being part of our U of H family for a while. And certainly, I think the people in, in Houston miss you. If you'll indulge me, uh, I do have some Houston-related questions. Uh, I know we have a lot of U of H listeners around here. So, uh, Coach, while you were uh, at U of H, a lot of things changed. <laughs> we had the $128 million TDECU Stadium, which I think is gorgeous. Uh, I love Governor Games there. I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. The, the Guy V. Lewis Basketball Development Center, that was uh, part of your work as well. Um, you know, the Lakers have practiced there. Harden's been there. It's been great for them. You hired Kelvin Sampson, uh, one of my favorite coaches ever. Uh, Tom Herman, who's obviously great. I mean, you just did so many things, left the program in a better place than you found it, is how I heard there. And then kind of look at the facilities. You've got stuff going on at Baylor that is very similar in terms of, like, upgrading what is the what is the impact of having those state-of-the-art uh league leading type facilities that, that you seem to care so much about you know i think it's i think it's certainly it's a, it's a huge impact it gives you a chance uh to to recruit at a at a high level and a, and a chance to compete uh at a at uh you know four conference championships for you know hopefully national championships uh so extremely important but uh, you know, here, here's what I tell our, our people, and I, and I said the same thing at, at, at Houston. We need those facilities, absolutely. Um, we, we need those to, to, to have a chance. But, uh, but at the end of the day, let's not be fooled, okay? We can have the best facilities in the country, but if we don't have the right people, the right people in leadership positions, um, we're, we're, we're not going to, to, to get out of those facilities as, as what we need to. And uh, so – Really, really important facilities piece, but even more important is, is making sure we've we've got the right people in in the uh, in the various leadership positions. I think it's interesting that you allude to leadership positions because a guy that I think of uh, in terms of that sort of upswing of U of H athletics. Obviously, you were at the forefront of a lot of things that happened there, and you had great people working around you and under you. And I get that, but you were you were a part of that. I think Tillman Fertitta uh, becoming the chairman of the board also uh, kind of a part of that. The influx of cash, the sort of uh, presence that he has in terms of media and coverage and things like that. It, it seems to have contributed to U of H kind of taking a little bit of a jump. I feel like I hear them mentioned more often than I used to, and often uh, Fertitta's name is kind of in there and it'll certainly be on the basketball center as well I, what what do you how do you assess the impact i know there are some alumni boosters that think he's kind of a loud mouth some that love him and the way that he's sort of brash and aggressive what, what do you think in terms of a guy like that being sort of the face of the money of a school you know when i was there uh, you know he was he was served on the on the board of regents and then i think um you know, we overlapped his his first year as, as chairman of of the board of regents, and uh, I, I certainly enjoyed working with him um, because um, he didn't believe in mediocrity. He he believed in in being aggressive and in excellence, and and uh, and I think he's he set the tone. He's uh, helped to to set the tone along with Renew Couture. She she was phenomenal to to work for, and uh, and work with, and again another person that hey you know what mediocrity is not acceptable I don't, we, we we don't want to hear about 
what what Houston hasn't done or, or what it can't do because there, there's no such thing. This is about what what Houston is going to do and and, and where we head. And as a leader of the athletics program, uh, it was it was refreshing to have that that or be surrounded by that type of leadership. And and uh, and certainly uh, uh, Chair Fatita was a was a big part of that. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, you talk about the next step or being a national president, like those kind of things. U of H may be on the verge of taking a step. I think to me, to a lot of the casual fans out there, a lot of the readers of blogs and so forth, it seems like the thing that really is holding U of H back, and I know it's not your responsibility anymore, but I'll get you to sort of, you know, uh, play doctor from afar here. Uh, do where, do they need to be uh, in a particular conference? W- which conference best suits them? How do you pursue that? It just seems like an, uh, an unsolvable problem at times, particularly, you know, with, with what happened last year with the big 12 you know i think there's there's a couple things i think one um you know in 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 houston should have aspirations and, and certainly when i was the, the 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 athletic director there uh we we had big time aspirations in terms of you know this this autonomous five uh conference uh you know being able to to, to work your way in in there but um but but i also think that you know while you have those those aspirations, um, you know, um, there's still a place for, for Houston in, in college athletics, and, and you saw it with a Tom Herman, uh, and I think you'll see it with a with a Calvin Sampson, and you'll see it with a Major Applewhite, uh, as well as the other coaches. No disrespect to, to any of the other coaches there because they've they've got great coaches, but uh, Houston can compete can compete at a high level no matter what conference they're in, and uh, and I think you know. You know, the message there is control what you can control and just continue to work each and every day being the best that you could be. And uh, and I think that uh, whether whether they compete in the American Athletic Conference, which, by the way, is, a, is an extremely competitive conference, and, and I think, uh, you know, uh, of the group of five, um, you know, they're, they're certainly, in my opinion, and, and I know I'm partial, but they're, they're, they're at the top. And uh, but, but I think, you know, they can compete within that conference and have national relevance. And I think that needs to be the skit that the conversation is, is can Houston athletics be nationally relevant? And I think they can, and they have been, they, they've proved it and they can continue to be uh, no matter the conference they participate in. It's a bit of a tight rope to walk. I think uh, if you're the, you know, playing that group of five schedule, the, uh, the AAC schedule they play and you have to be more or less perfect. And we saw it play out last year. So there, there's truth in that for sure. But uh, I would certainly like to see them, uh, you know, uh, in a more prestigious location. I certainly as a homer feel like they deserve it, but, but Hey, I, it's not your current job. I appreciate you indulging uh, those of us in Houston coach. And we, we certainly miss you here, but we wish you all the best at Baylor, which is a great place to land. And we couldn't be happier for you. I uh, just, uh, I, it seems like the the storm clouds are passing and it's kind of bright skies ahead for Baylor. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. And, and uh, um, you know, I, I my message here continues to be, you know, Baylor certainly has had some great moments, uh, you know, athletically. Uh, but I, I think our best days lie ahead, and I really believe that um, in, in all things that we do. Um, you know, graduating student-athletes, uh, preparing them for life, um, you know, winning championships, uh, making sure that we're leaders in social responsibility, all of that. Um, I'm excited about the future, and, and I'm certain, you 
you know, honored and, and feel blessed to be the athletic director here. Well, we're definitely glad to have you as the athletic director at Baylor University, and uh, I can't wait for uh, football season to start up here in the fall. But, uh, Mac, we definitely appreciate you for uh, joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And uh, for those that want to find out more about Baylor Athletics, uh, you can just follow Baylor on Twitter at Baylor Athletics and also BaylorBears.com. But, uh, Mac, we definitely appreciate your time in joining us this week. Thank you both. It's been my pleasure. Closing time. So we just had a great interview with Mac Rhodes, the athletic director at Baylor University. And thanks to uh, Mac for joining us on the show. And uh, Kevin, I I couldn't be more thrilled with not only his commentary and just candor with us, but uh, you know, just the excitement around the program with, with, you know, the hiring of Matt Rule. Yeah. And my former boss, uh, sort sort of. I was a tutor with the athletic department, so I didn't really like report to him necessarily. But we, you know, we traveled in the same hall, shook hands a couple of times. Love the guy. But uh, you were asking me off mic why I call him coach. Yeah. Since he's never actually like coach, coach, you know, like been the head coach of a program. Or it's just it's a habit I get into. I call all the athletic directors of the high school districts of the uh, college collegiate programs I deal with. I call them all coach because it's kind of like an honorary thing, and I discovered that most of them like that. And I know that Coach Rhodes likes that as well. So no, he's never been a coach. It's not a mistake on my part. It's just sort of an honorific that I give to anyone in that position. It's unique. It's a sign of respect for the position, essentially. All right, Jeremy. Uh, I know you weren't on the interview, but you had the chance to listen to it. What did you think? Oh, incredible interview with Mac. Uh, really, you know, Kevin, a long time ago when Mac was hired, uh, you know, congratulated Baylor basically on the on the great hire, getting him from Mizzou, uh, of course, before he was at U of H. And I, I could not be more pleased with uh, the job that he's doing or just, you know, the, the interview he gave in terms of sort of the talking points on on rule and, and sort of where the program is going, how pretty he was with the athletes. I liked um, his uh, when he talked about, you know, the difference between a quick reaction and an overreaction. And I, I really have a lot of confidence in the way he's going to handle the Baylor, Baylor Athletic Department, especially in contrast to how it has been handled. So he gives me a lot of confidence as a Baylor fan moving into the future. And I think whatever he does, it's going to be good. Yeah, I, I hope so. And uh, he did a lot of great things at U of H, mm-hmm. helped turn that program around. Uh, he was only at Mizzou for a short time. But I'm not sure he gets enough credit for how involved he was with all of those moves that elevated U of H to the position it I, is I now in. I think he does. I think, think that's so? why. I think that's why Mizzou hired him. Sure. I think that's why Baylor hired him because I mean he completely turned around the face of that athletic program. I guess I mean like a public perception. Built. I mean he got those facilities built. Uh, he was a great fundraiser. All the ho- all the coaches he hired were terrific. I mean, yeah. Whiting is the baseball. Right. Calvin Sampson is terrific. We love him, friend of the show. He's been on multiple times. We're never able to get Tom Herman on because he's uh, you know he's a big shot, too big for us. But uh, we did ask a couple of times. But uh, you know. I mean, we've had Pat Forty, you know, we've got Jeff Van Gundy coming, but you know, Tom Herman, do your own thing at Texas. But, uh, but no, I, I think that certainly there's a recognition within the business. I don't know if people walking around on the street necessarily think Mac Rhodes, U of H, and the effect he had there. So I have nothing but gratitude for him, and I'm happy for him uh, to be in the position he's in. I'm excited to see what he does. Yeah, it should be fine. Uh, it should be a lot of fun to see what Matt Rule can do this year. It looks like he, uh, you know, it, it looks like Rhodes' first hire of Rule was the correct decision. I mean, I, I would not go against Yeah, yeah and, well, and, and as a Baylor fan, let, let's think, because we all kind of like looked around the room like, wait, Matt, wait, who? You know, like Rule? Like, we, we didn't know this guy. I mean, he's from like Philly. And I mean, we had from, heard the name. But yeah, we well, just... we, you had heard the name, but, but no one thought Temple... Baylor. I mean, no one thought that, that that could ever happen. We were talking about what, like Mike Gundy and some other crazy random names out there. But Matt Rule was, you know, that the, the 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 sort of the dark horse that no one suspected. And here, you know, if you're looking at some of the tweets from current and even former Baylor football players, they're all saying like, "Hey, no disrespect to the previous 
administration, but this guy's legit. I wish I could spend more time with him. Yeah, that, that tweet that you're referring to is actually from Chance Waz, who I believe is a, an upperclassman this year for the Bears. So a, a lot of excitement from Rule, a lot of excitement around Rhodes. So I think Baylor is in a good position. Uh, it'll just be nice to see them get over the hurdle once all the um, you know litigation is finally uh, done with through all those Title IX lawsuits. But um, kind of switching gears here for a moment, we've spent a lot of time talking sports, Tony Romo. Uh, we don't talk a lot about uh, politics on the show, but uh, a lot has happened um, here in the last few weeks. I mean, uh, we look at a lot of developing stories, of course. Uh, Syria, Russia, what's going on there. Uh, the recent China visit here to the United States at North Korea. Um, test launching missiles. Uh, which is a little bit concerning. And also, you know, the Senate confirming Neil Gorsuch as the 113th Supreme Court justice. But the big story of the week for me has to be Syria. Uh, U.S. warships launched 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles Thursday night at a Syrian government airbase. And it's the first time the U.S. has directly attacked the Assad regime in the country's six-year civil war. This is a change of pace from what President Donald Trump, and it still shocks me that I'm saying President Donald Trump, but... It's a, it's a huge change of pace from what the Trump administration had advocated leading up in the campaign, even as early as this week. He essentially said that he wants the United States to stay out of Syria, to not get involved in that civil war. And then, of course, Assad uh, kills more than 80 people you know, with a chemical weapons attack using Syrian gas, women, children, men, all dead. I commend Trump for making the move to actually go after Assad. And I think he's had a lot of bipartisan support. My only concern is what is the next step? What is the next strategy? Uh, to me, that's a little bit concerning. And then also you look over the weekend and you see Syria still using that military base. It's like, do we, do we miss our targets with <laughs> those 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles? I don't know. I, I, I'm Jeremy, I'm going to start with you. What are the next steps is is Trump just going to use like the you know the one time firing of cruise missiles to try to set the tone, or does he actually have a strategy for the region? No, I, I think what's um you, you know I I sort of share your 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 views and your fears about moving forward, but as of as I understand it right now, there is no official stance, there is no official policy change from the Trump White House towards Syria. In other words, there's not going to be an escalation of involvement. This was sort of a one-off retaliation for the Assad regime using chemical weapons, which, you know, the world sort of understands, you know, by virtue of UN edicts and mandates that you're not supposed to do that. Um, Trump essentially enforced Obama's red line. If you recall back in 2013, Obama sort of drew this red line and then really didn't do anything. Right. There was this deal brokered through the Russians where they were supposed to remove all these chemical weapons. They obviously didn't get all of them. Well, the Obama administration said that Assad had no more. Right, right. They said, of course, of course they said that. Who knows? The Russians might have just, you know, put him over here, then sent him back. I mean, who knows what happened? Anyways, he still had some. And remember, back then he killed 1,400 people. Okay, this is this is a much smaller strike. What happened here uh, recently? And I, I I commend Trump for acting quickly. My only concern, like you, is sort of like, well, where does this leave us, right? Because in my opinion, I think this is Assad sort of testing Trump and sort of like seeing how far he can go. Because if he could get away with it under Obama, it means I mean he wasn't going to stop him from doing anything. So what does this do for Russia? I mean, obviously Russia and Putin support Assad because Assad is quote unquote fighting ISIS. So you're you're kind of in this catch twenty two. I mean, do you do you want this dictator that is kind of doing your dirty work going in there and fighting ISIS, or 
Are you okay with that if he, you know, doesn't treat his people well? I, I don't know. It's kind of a it's, it's a difficult situation. There will be no regime change courtesy of the U.S. military. I think if anything does happen in Syria, it will be at the hands of other parties that are not uh, directly affiliated with the U.S. I think what what's probably I think most notable. Isn't that what we do all the time though? Why, why would you bet against that? It seems like the well, the, la- the last time we we advocated for regime change, we invaded a country. So um, we do it all the time. Well, no, what, what, like what, what, Iraq was the Constant. last one. Well, constantly. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Virtually we're every we're not invading in Syria. That's that's the point I'm making. And but but what I think is interesting about this is how upset Russia is. Right? I do you mean, remember you the have, Visigoths? You have all of that was these. Us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Russia is that upset. Oh, they're very upset. No, Are you I kidding think, me? I if you look I think at it's a farce. No, Putin's comments. Oh, well, okay. Putin, okay, look, all right. look at the person that they're sending out there to make all those public comments. It's not Putin. It's the prime minister of Russia. Nobody knows who that is. Mm. It, 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 I think if Putin was really furious, he would make it known. They've stopped. They stopped all communication with us in the region. It's not true. It's no. It, it, no. It's no. It was announced. It was announced on Friday morning that, that was the case, and then Friday afternoon they reopened those channels. Oh well. So okay. I, like I said, I don't think Putin is really upset. I I, I, look, I I mean, look. The United States gave him an hour's heads up before they bombed the base. Well, sure, because they have troops at those bases. They didn't. We, we, trust me, we don't want to provoke Russia into some sort of proxy war there. Well, but it's, uh, it's already a proxy the, war. The, the 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 point is, I think that this. If we're going back to the main point of this, well, what is the next step? I don't think there is necessarily one. I think what. Trump did was say, look, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do, but you can't use chemical weapons doing it. I know that that sort of sucks, but, you know, like what better option do we have in that region? We're not going to invade Syria. We're not going to advocate for a direct regime change. I think whatever happens, or at least courtesy of the U.S. military, I think whatever happens uh, to Assad, he can't and whatever he does use chemical weapons against his own people. Yeah, I, 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 to me, I, I think. All right. Here, here's two things. One, Mike Pence suggested in a VP debate last fall the U.S. should take a stronger stance against the Assad regime. Like, I, I agree. I, I think we should. Trump dismissed that view, saying Syria is fighting ISIS. Uh, in an interview with The Guardian during the campaign, Trump said that what we should do is focus on ISIS. We should not be focusing on Syria. Obviously, that changed this past week. U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley suggested on Thursday that the U.S. might use force without U.N. approval, uh, saying that when, you, when the United Nations consistently fails in its duty to act collectively, there are times in life of states that we are compelled to take our own action. And she also said that the United States doesn't do soft power. So that, to me, is a little bit concerning when, when you say that the United States doesn't use soft power. I mean, I, I think the show of force here was the right decision. But to completely say that you're not going to use soft power as you know your, your top ambassador to the United Nations says that, that to me is a little concerning. Yeah, and I, I think, well, I mean, I, I love Nikki Haley's uh, talk to the UN. Um, it was probably one of the best speeches I've heard since John Bolton uh, was at the UN. But that being said, um, I think one thing that is sort of heartening if you're a Trump hater is that he, by doing this, he completely alienated a section of his base that was very non-interventionist. Like all of those nasty people on Twitter that you don't like. Uh, the, like Ann, the Ann Coulter's, the yeah, that type. Yeah. They are really not happy with this, and They'll so I think. It. Well, I, what but I, what I think that shows is that Trump is you know maturing a little bit in his approach to foreign policy. He's not the sort or of, that he just sees images on TV <clears throat> and <laughs> wants to act. No, I absolutely don't think that that that, that was the case. Razor. A lot of people are saying that, and I, I really don't think that's the case. There's I, also I, a report that came out I think on Saturday night suggesting that Ivanka Trump was the one that kind of forced Donald to make this decision. 
Uh, my ex-girlfriend's really into Ivanka. She was just texting me yesterday <laughs> talking about how she uh, she likes her more and more every day. I, I mean, don't think anyone forces Donald Trump to do anything, much I, less his daughter. I think he definitely listens to his family. And he's very, dumb very enough closely. that he needs people to tell him what to do that I'm sure if you don't directly command him to, you sort of make it like Inception. You make him think it's his idea. That's how you get it well, done. Well, and when you look at the, the Trump uh, administration right now, it's, it's really interesting what's going on. You've got almost like infighting in the West Wing. And, and there were reports for the weekend that, you know, Trump told uh, Kushner, who was married to Ivanka Trump, and uh, Bannon to, you know, just quiet down, you know, just do your job, work together. I don't want this distraction. But it's really interesting because Kushner, not a Republican, Bannon, far, 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 far right. Mm. And uh, that was not a stutter. That was just an, uh, <laughs> accentuating how far right Bannon is. <laughs> um but yeah, these two people are, you know, two of his top advisors in the administration. And that, that, that's so odd to have two people advising you that have such differing beliefs in the political landscape. Well, I think that's a good thing, almost. It can you know, be. Yeah, it can be. But, well, hold on. Steve Bannon was demoted. I mean, Not, he, no, he wasn't. He was absolutely demoted. He was kicked off of uh, whatever foreign the national security. Council? Yeah, he was kicked off. He was demoted. He is not there anymore. And so he, he's been talking about quitting for the last couple of weeks. Anyone, you know, Steve Bannon is sort of the Darth Vader, you know, to the left right now. But really, he doesn't serve a prominent right. role in the white, he doesn't serve the role in the White House that people think he does. I think that he was, you know, uh, critical to Trump's um, electoral victory, but he was—he's not this sort of puppet master behind the scenes that he's been painted to be. Um, he's Jerry, like if Dick Cheney were really stupid. I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean, Dick Cheney actually had like 20, 30 years of insider experience in D.C. Yeah, really stupid and experienced. I don't know about that. I think that's a terrible analogy. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. Kevin just to see throwing what, shade. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what Trump and the administration do with response to the regional issues going on, specifically with Syria. But one either one other item to keep an eye on: uh, the National Security Council presented Donald Trump with North Korea options uh, that include placing nukes in South Korea. Uh, this is according to NBC News on Saturday. So I think that's something to look. At, especially as we gear up towards the uh, 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. Uh, and we'll actually talk about the, uh, the 18 Olympics here in just a moment. But opening week for the Astros, uh, let's discuss that for a moment. Astros go 3-3 three and three in the first six games, of course, taking the first three games against the Mariners before dropping game four, uh, dropping the first two games of the uh, series against the Kansas City Royals. And obviously our, we are recording prior to game seven taking place. But uh, some positives, some negatives. I think I think some positives are obviously the uh, the pitching staff for the Astros. Uh, you look at the entire staff as a whole with a 2.79 ERA. I mean, starting pitching is a 1.70 ERA, which is the best starters ERA through the club's first six games of a season since 1979. Dallas Keuchel looked like vintage Dallas Keuchel uh, through his first two starts. Uh, Chris Davinsky had a nice outing out of the bullpen. Lance McCullers looked good in his first start. Uh, the entire rotation as a whole looked good. I think there were some question marks. With the bullpen, of course, Gregerson coming in mm -hmm. on Saturday and absolutely getting shelled in the eighth inning after a phenomenal seven innings outing by Keuchel. That was a little disappointing, but uh, the offense, that's something that we thought was going to be, you know, a very strong point for the Astros this year. And outside of uh, George Springer, they haven't impressed. 
Well, and, and I'd like to take this opportunity to congratulate Jay Kaplan, who we've had on the show a number of times, had in studio before, a guy we love, uh, recently celebrating a year at The Chronicle. So congratulations, Jake. Uh, everybody tweeted him, telling him how much you love the work he does for The Chronicle covering the Astros. But uh, it, it's so small. Who cares? Good exactly. God. It's, it's first it's week of baseball. Seven games. First you know? week of baseball. Yeah. And I, 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 was, I was actually discussing this with Kevin off air. Uh, but the Astros tend to start slow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I believe last year they started three and seven on the season, but... If the Astros do win Sunday, they would be four and three, which would be their best seven game start since 2006. So just one game above 500. And of course, the Astros, they're going to they're going to get together. But I think the thing that does matter to me most is seeing Keuchel the first two games just looking good. What little you can tell from this start is pretty good. I think seeing the Keuchel kind of back to himself, his mechanics look fine. Velocity is good. I mean, all those things you're looking for. The offense will come around too small a sample size. I think that you cannot tell anything except that, uh, you know, Keuchel looks to be returning to form so yeah. hopefully you don't one, one thing injuries. that is disconcerting to me is uh, colin McHugh. yeah out what six five, weeks four to six weeks yeah. with a uh discomfort in his shoulder uh we, we had hunter atkins on a few weeks ago and he was telling us about the dead arm uh McHugh tried to make a first start uh in fresno with the astros triple a affiliate this past week on their opening day and actually didn't even make it to the second inning so that's a little bit concerning for me but uh yeah astros i think they're going to be fine this year it's going to be a lot of fun i think we're going to have a lot to talk about as we get further into the season but uh, we had just mentioned Pyeongchang in the 2018 Olympics. Uh, did you guys see the news this week that the NHL will not participate in the Winter Games in 2018? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, to, to me, that's a little bit crazy. I, I, I mean, we've had the NHL competing in the Winter Olympics since 1998. And, and to me, that's like saying you're not going to allow NBA players to compete in the Summer Olympics. Yeah, it is like that. Um, Isn't that great for their brand, in theory? I don't think it's great for their brand. Uh, you you have two of the league's biggest stars, Alex Ovechkin. Uh, he was asked, actually, after the NHL issued a statement, and he said that, yeah, I'm still going to go to the Olympics. I didn't change my mind. I'm still going. Sidney Crosby, who you know mm-hmm. is the, the face of Canadian hockey. And I've the face played. of c- concussion care as well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, he calls the NHL's decision to stay out of the 18 Olympics disappointing and unfortunate. So uh, two questions for you. Uh, should the NHL continue to send these athletes to the Winter Games? And is this going to impact whether or not you watch the 2018 Olympics? It will not impact it at all. It'll be on television. I'll watch it when it's on, and I won't follow it. That's just kind of generally how it goes at the Winter Olympics. But uh, but but Gary Bettman's, I mean, a terrible commissioner. I'm not surprised to see that this is uh, this is the decision, and also that this is the fallout. He's got an open revolt with some of his best players. I mean, the faces of the league, which uh, that would suggest to me that he didn't handle it well. Whether or not it was the right decision, all of the back talk coming out of his players, his labor force, suggests to me that he handled this poorly, which is right in line with what I expect from Bettman. Yeah, it won't it won't affect me watching the the Winter Olympics at all because I'm watching it for the men's finger skating. Um, That's what I'll, I thought. I'll actually be dressing up in a um, in an outfit for you guys when we sit down during the Winter Olympics. No, you I, won't. I <laughs> we will we will be having a uh, uh, the weekly brew podcast at a different location. Yeah. Week. We will just not inform you where the location. Is. I've got a lot of posters in my room. It's 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 really weird. All right, know, is the NHL have thirty one teams? I couldn't tell you to be honest. That is a weird number. I could not 31. tell you. How what does the NHL actually stand for? National Hockey League. <laughs> I know. Jesus Christ, <laughs> <laughs> But I, I don't know. I, to me, I, I I get it from an owner's perspective that you don't want your team taking... You, you don't want like five to ten players from your team going off and playing in the, you know, 
Olympics for three weeks, taking 18 days off the season. I think that forces you to have a lot more back-to-backs, increases injuries. Right. So I see that from an NHL this, perspective. This but is from more a fan perspective, I don't like it. The NHL had a financial concern, evidently, is what I'm reading now. Gary Bettman and the 31 owners, which is where I found out about 31. But uh, apparently it's like $20 million uh, every time they go to, for travel, accommodations, insurance especially is a huge cost for them, all that stuff. And the IOC had been paying that up until 2013, but then Thomas Bach took over the IOC, put an end to that, and that's been a contentious thing they've been dealing with for, I guess, about three years now. So apparently it's been brewing for a while. I guess I get that. Um, the NHL did have some demands. They wanted to be uh, some sort of sponsorship, uh, financial relationship that the IOC wasn't willing to do because uh, it's not-for-profit. Right. So I, it, it makes sense to me, I guess, but obviously he's not handled it well because you know I'm having to dig pretty deep to find all these things, and it is not part of their... Uh, 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 forward-facing strategy to explain this decision. So that is the world's biggest sporting event, the Winter and uh, Summer Olympics. The second biggest sporting event in the world is the uh, World Cup. Yep. And uh, according to uh, several media outlets, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are going to j- submit a joint bid to host the 2026 World Cup on Monday. So the, the, by the time you're listening to this podcast, that's when uh, all three of these countries in the CONCACAF uh, region are going to submit their bid. And uh, the U.S. last hosted the World Cup in 1994 when it was just a 24-team uh, tournament. Uh, that games, that World Cup, still holds an attendance record. You know, despite the field being at 32, the field for the uh, 2026 games is expected to expand to 48 hmm. teams. So it's, it's already going to be much larger. But I'm curious, are you, are you guys excited about this opportunity to have the World Cup in North America, you know, it's, it's going to be in Russia in 2018. It's going to be in uh, Qatar in 2022, which is just going to be insane. It's going to take place during the wintertime. But are you glad that this is going to be coming back to North America, potentially, for the first time since 1994? I hope it's nowhere near Houston It will Texas. Be. God dang. Mm. <laughs> no, I'm not thrilled about that at all. Uh, it's a ton of traffic. I'm not really going to. I'll enjoy the games, uh, probably not in pool play. I, I honestly probably won't watch until it's elimination time anyway. Well, I so. think that's a fair point because, you know, when you have 32 teams like there is now, like there are now, I mean, you have four teams in pool play. Pool play can be exciting, but when you expand that mm-hmm. to more than 48 teams, doubling the size of the 1994 games. Are you, are you kind of watering down the field a little bit? Am I going to have to watch Puerto Rico play? I was going to say, it sounds like a lot of bad teams are going to be playing. Well, They're expanding well, it. So here's the funny part. Uh, typically, teams that are the host countries get an automatic bid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means Mexico, the United States would get a bid. And oh, so if you have two countries doing it, do they both get... J- so here's the deal. Uh, CONCACAF currently has three spots available for uh, the current World Cup, as it's set out right now, with mm-hmm. 32 teams. And they have their fourth place team plays like the fifth place team in the Oceania region. And so they can get potentially four teams in the World Cup. Yeah, everybody knows. Yeah, yeah. As of 2026, <laughs> CONCACAF is supposed to have six teams in the, uh, in the, in the World Cup. And so what happens is if you are – it still needs to be decided on how this is going to work out. But Canada hasn't made a World Cup since, like, the 1980s. Yeah. And so they would be given an auto bid. I mean, is, is that a fair move for – I mean, three teams in CONCACAF to take up those six spots, you know, two, one of which might not even be deserving. And you're hurting the field of play, too. It's only going to make for a worse ultimate cup, you know, by incremental so, amounts. So, so why isn't the United States doing this independently? Like, why do you need both Mexico and Canada to have this joint bid? I share the infrastructural costs, I guess. You but, know, I mean, I you imagine. have all the stadiums that you need in the United States. Do you? I mean, think about it. Y- you have beautiful NFL stadiums. You have all of the suites necessary. I mean, what is it going to be like? 80% of the games are in the U.S. and then the other 20% are in Mexico and Canada. I mean, 
But here's the thing: Mexico's going to pay for it. <laughs> well, I was just—I was actually—I was, yeah. Uh, Kevin stole my thunder. You don't need to say if I stole a joke of yours; you can just let it go by. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really couldn't care less about a commie kickball tournament here in the U.S. I mean, it's as far as I'm concerned. I got uh, to stop yeah. you right there. Kickball is radically different from soccer. I actually enjoy playing kickball. <laughs> well, but that's that's what I call soccer—is commie kickball. No, I, I really, I, I really could not care less as coming to the U.S. or Canada or Mexico. I think I think it'll be a lot of fun. I, I wish the United States would submit the bid independently. Um, I, but, you know, I get the reasons why they're doing this. I mean, there's it, it shows unity between Canada and Mexico and the United States, despite everything that the Trump administration says right now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't blame, uh, you know, the United States for making this joint bid. Um, we'll find out in May 2020 on whether or not this bid was actually accepted. I think... You know, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada are going to be the favorites for 2026. So we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, what year does the U.S. win the World Cup? Uh, are we talking women? No. No, men. Sorry, the men's national team. What year, what year do they win the World Cup? Never. Never? I don't think so. I think there's too much money, too much training. Soccer's a burgeoning sport. It's got to happen eventually, right? We might not even make the World Cup field in 2018. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying in the near future. I may not be alive, but I'm wondering how far in the future. Do you, do you think there's no point at which you could say by this point no. America will have won one? No way. Wow. It's be, think about it. I mean, soccer is not even in the top echelon of sports that youth today think about. I mean, it's, it's basketball. It's football. It's baseball. It's lacrosse. It's it's golf. It's tennis. No, I mean, all of our top athletes, none of them play soccer. That's not true, though. Athletes that come from other areas, particularly from south of us, um, in, in particular parts of like Europe that are, you know, play a lot of soccer they come in with that mentality and i think they oftentimes will spread that around the high schools they go to here i see a lot of it with high school athletes well, so i, I do think problem, soccer's growing I, I i do think it's growing but we don't have the infrastructure like other teams right. other countries do i sure. mean other other countries have a set system on how to develop players we don't have that yeah and at 13 right. years old they get packaged off to go to schools where they study books for like an hour a day and they play soccer for 10 hours a day exactly know? yeah we don't have like the cultural capital to like support a soccer like if you look at uh you know major league soccer it's it's not i mean we have the dine mode. They're great. I like going to the games. They're fun. But it's not, I mean, it's not a thing here. It's I, just not. Yeah. I, and, and so I, I, I think. Maybe, maybe 2026 changes that. I mean, yeah. we, saw, we saw the growth of the MLS after the 1994 games. Uh, the United <laughs> States did make, I believe, the knockout round. So mm -hmm. I think this could be the next step to take the United States to the next level when it comes to soccer in 2026. But that's a long time from now. That's nine years. So we'll find out in May of 2020 on whether or not uh, the United States, Mexico, and uh, Canada are hosting the 2026 World Cup. And I think it's, it's pretty much a slam dunk right now because Asia and Europe cannot host. So that leaves you with uh, South America, probably not going to get it again, uh, Africa, and then Australia. I, I, I think when you look at the infrastructure that the United States has in terms of stadiums, it's just a no-brainer for that decision. But guys, uh, it's been an, uh, an amazing episode having us all back in studio this week. Again, this has been episode 88 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Uh, thanks to Mac Rhodes for uh, joining us on the show. And uh, Kevin, we've got two pretty big guests coming at us for episode 89. Yeah, uh, Jeff Van Gundy, I'm excited about. It. I mean, he's, uh, you know, I always try not to be too much of a fanboy when we have people on that I'm big fans of. Jeff Van Gundy, hard to find a guy I'm a bigger fan of, so I'll have to try to uh, keep myself contained and be professional and whatnot. And then Sean Pendergast, just one of my favorite human beings in the world, going to join us for a little draft preview in studio. Yeah. So we get to show him these delicious digs that we have here and all the equipment. Hopefully, um, maybe we'll have to teach him how to use it. I don't know if he's uh, 
responsible around high-level equipment like this, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get him worked through it, and we're excited to have him coming in. Yeah, it should be a great time and uh, a great episode. But uh, if you want to continue and follow our work, you can just search us online to search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, uh, search our website, Weekly Brewcast. Com. And if you want to leave us a review, go to iTunes. We highly recommend that you go to iTunes and give us feedback. Tell us what you like. Uh, give us interview ideas, topical ideas. Uh, and also, feel free to hit us up on Twitter as well. Uh, you can hit up Kevin at KMichaelCook, myself at A. Staten, and then FiestaBear08 for Jeremy. And also, if you want to follow anything with the Astros, follow Jake M. Kaplan and Hunter Atkins. 35 on Twitter, uh, both two great writers for the Chronicle and uh, contributors to the show. But again, thanks to Baylor Athletic Director Mac Rhodes for joining us on episode 88 of the Google Group Podcast. And again, we'll have a great episode 89 ahead of you for this next week. We've got Jeff Finn Gundy and then also Sean Pendergast here in studio. So uh, it's been a great time having uh, all three of us in studio. And for my co hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, my name is Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 